an Audi original. It's nearly 6pm on November the 9th, 2013. It's a cold autumnal evening. We're at the Millennium Stadium in Cardiff, Wales. Under the glow of the floodlights, the stadium is packed to the rafters. More than 66,000 fans have turned out for a rugby match between Wales and South Africa. And as the Welsh players line up to sing the national anthem, the home fans give them a raucous backing. It's a grand occasion. Even Prince William, the future king, has shown up. Alongside him, the Welsh First Minister, Carwyn Jones. Everyone's singing their hearts out. And out in the crowd, amongst the sea of smiling faces, if we zoom in, we'll find someone familiar, a character you should know by now. It's the Welshman, the man from British American Tobacco. He was Belinda Walter's handler, the man she secretly recorded, and one of the key people responsible for overseeing BAT's operations in South Africa to combat the illicit trade in cigarettes. With him are two other men, both South African. They're senior operatives for a private security company called Forensic Security Services, or FSS. The outfit contracted to carry out BAT's boots-on-the-ground intelligence operation. They're here at the Welshman's invitation. The two South Africans are called Mike and Derek Vosloo, two ex-cops. They're not only colleagues, but also brothers. And they were both former members of a riot squad called Reaction Unit 9, which has been accused of taking a heavy-handed approach to quelling violence during the apartheid era. Derek, whom the Welshman affectionately refers to as Vossi, was the man who helped recruit Belinda Walter. The reason we know that the Welshman invited the Vosloo brothers to the rugby is because we've seen emails between them setting the trip up. The relationship between BAT and FSS was pretty cosy, to say the least. Here's an email sent by the Welshman to his South African colleagues a couple of months before the match. The email is read by an actor. Need to talk hotels in Cardiff. Checking tonight and very expensive. I have found an apartment for eight and would cost us £150 each for two nights in Cardiff. Maybe a bit cosy and two of the rooms have double beds and not single. The trip to the rugby in Wales was just one part of a much larger jolly. A month before the trip, the Welshmen sent a detailed itinerary of the fun they'd be having with their hosts from BAT, including... A curry and a few beers in the ship and shovel on the Wednesday night followed by a golf tournament. Those attending the golf on the Thursday are to be there at 10am for bacon rolls with kick-off at 11am. We will have a dinner and winner's award ceremony following the game late afternoon, early evening. The FSS boys are expecting to take the trophy home so we have to disappoint them. Following the dinner, 
we will move into Richmond, where the guys are staying overnight for a few extra beers. But the trip wasn't all fun and banter. There was a little bit of work to be done as well. To make it more official and purposeful, etc., hopefully a company designing beacon tracking devices will attend to show one of the latest and smallest beacons they are designing. I think it will be useful to have your feedback as you are probably the only service provider currently utilising the technology full-time at the moment. They would only have a short window to discuss and then we would set you free to do some shopping. In and amongst the pints and the curry, the shopping and the golf, the brothers from FSS were going to be viewing some potential new toys, tracking beacons, courtesy of the Welshman and BAT. Equipment that could then be used to help keep tabs on the competition. These devices would let FSS monitor people, remotely tracking their every move. If such devices were intended to be unleashed on BAT's competitors, the tobacco giant could have found itself in all sorts of hot water. And I've seen documents, sworn legal testimony from a very senior South African policeman who says that BAT's agents were acting way beyond their remit and did not have the right permissions to carry out this kind of surveillance. If true, FSS may have acted unlawfully while working for the tobacco giant. BAT, however, says that all of its activities in South Africa were entirely above board and carried out with the purpose of helping the country crack down on cigarette smuggling. BAT vehemently denies any wrongdoing. My name is Victoria Hollingsworth from the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. You're listening to Smokescreen, a podcast uncovering the secret world of espionage, that we've been told operated at the heart of big tobacco in South Africa. This week, we'll be lifting the lid on BAT's hired security company, FSS. This is episode six, Boots on the Ground. I've just got, uh, found a different number for... And one of the ex-FSS guys. So I'm going to try that now. It's March 2021. And I'm trying to see if I can get hold of any former FSS agents. I'm looking for sources to see if I can find out more about their operations and the work they carried out on behalf of BAT. But I'm not having much luck. Ugh, call failed. What a surprise. Even when I do get hold of people... They're not all that interested in speaking to me. Okay, so I'm going to try this number again. And this is someone that I think worked for FSS. But let's just see if I get anything other than voicemail. Oh my gosh, it's ringing. Oh, hi. Hello. My name's Victoria. I'm phoning from the UK. I'm a journalist. I wanted to have a um, quick ch- talk with you, if that's okay. <laughs> I'm guessing you didn't want to speak to me. 
Not many of the men who work for FSS are willing to go on the record about the sorts of things they did. But one woman was prepared to talk to me. Her name is Tasha, and she was married to an FSS agent called Marius Smith. Like the Vosloo brothers, Marius was a former policeman. Tasha claims Marius was well acquainted with the type of technology we just heard the Welshman offering to show his FSS contacts before a round of golf. He did tell me that they would put trackers on cars to see where they're going with the cigarettes. And he did say to me that they are not allowed to do it, but they had to do it. Do you think he felt uncomfortable about doing it? I think he did because it's literally you have to, I mean... If the cars are parked outside in the road, basically they have to try and, and do it where no one sees them or they have to jump walls, you know, to to put this tracker on the person's car to see where they're going. So, yeah, I did think he felt uncomfortable with it. So I'm aware it has been alleged that FSS people did put trackers on cars. As far as I can tell, it's claimed that they didn't actually have the right approvals to be doing it. That's right. That's right. Tasha's corroborating claims that I've heard from multiple sources that the FSS agents would clandestinely place the beacons onto BAT's competitors' vehicles and then they would follow them around to see where they went. BAT strongly deny any wrongdoing and point to the fact that following an investigation into its activities, the UK's serious fraud office concluded there was insufficient evidence for any prosecutions. Marius was one of the guys on the ground who Tasha says deployed trackers, logged movements and paid informants. And Tasha claims that the rugby-loving Vosloo brothers, FSS's senior managers, were demanding. It was a lot of pressure. I know Marius did tell me, you know, he's under a lot of pressure because they have to get so much off the streets and da-da-da-da, you know, and if they didn't, then, you know, the Vosloo's will jump down their throats. We tried to contact the Vosloos for their side of the story, but they didn't respond to requests for comment. Tasha doesn't know the precise details of what Marius was doing. She says he kept her in the dark about a lot of it, but she knew it was a murky business. He would tell me to be wary. He would tell me to, you know, just be vigilant. Shortly after Marius started working for FSS... Tasha says she believes strange things began to happen. I started noticing people sitting outside the house. I would see them through the window and then I would carry on with housework and, you know, and then half an hour later or an hour later I'll go back and same person still sitting there and they would sit there for hours. What did Marius say to you about them? He said that they're obviously watching him or they're watching the house because they know that they're clamping down on them for the cigarettes then uh, you know it's yeah so I don't know he fall I know they they put trackers on on Marius's car you know because how else would you know where Marius stays Tasha says she doesn't know who might have been watching them although she suspects it might have had something to do with one of BAT's competitors given how many rivals they had it doesn't narrow things down much but Tasha says that when Marius moved off the tobacco project, the visits from mysterious men stopped. And more than that, she noticed a real change about her husband. 
He worked the hours that he wanted to work. There was no pressure. He was happy, happier than what I've seen him in, you know, in a long time. At this point, you might be wondering why we're not talking to Marius directly. There's a reason for that. At around 9pm on the evening of July the 3rd, 2015, a few years after he stopped working on the BAT contract, Marius was sitting at the kitchen table in his house in Radfontein. He was surrounded by his extended family who were in town for a funeral. Tasha finds it difficult to talk about what happened next. Something awful and inexplicable that changed her life forever. And then the next thing, there were two people in our kitchen standing there with balaclavas. The one had a green balaclava on and the other one had a black balaclava on. They didn't say a word. They just started shooting. And then I screamed and Marius was on the floor. And Marius always taught me that if there is ever a shooting or something, then you have to, you, you duck. You don't, you know, you, you make yourself as small as possible. And I thought that's what he was doing. And I was screaming and Marius was just lying there. The police came and then the paramedics came and then they said to me, no, he's dead. And, and that was it. God, Tasha, I'm so sorry. Tasha says that the police investigation didn't get very far and she feels like they didn't do a very thorough job. The police came and they collected forensics and stuff and the next day I I get up and I'm doing washing and there I found a, a bullet which they hadn't even collected. Really? Where was the bullet? It was in my laundry. So to me, it's like how much um, investigations and and stuff have you actually done on on this murder? What happened with the police investigation? What can you tell me about how far that that got? Nowhere. It got nowhere. Did they ever have any leads? No, I don't think so. Not that they told me about. So no arrests? No arrests were made? No. No, nothing. I tried to speak with the police who investigated Marius's death. They didn't tell me much beyond the fact that they had no leads. It's been suggested to me by one of Marius's former colleagues at FSS that it could have been an armed robbery gone wrong. It's an explanation that Tasha finds hard to agree with. She says the men didn't take anything or make any demands, despite there being jewellery and money they could have stolen. They burst in, killed Marius without a word, and left. Tasha and her family remain in the dark as to why Marius was killed, and despite my best efforts, have not been able to come up with any answers. There's no evidence that it had anything to do with Marius's work for FSS. South Africa is a country where violence is endemic. There are nearly 60 murders a day, and only a fifth of those murders are ever solved, Marius's case is sadly not remarkable. In that context, it's easy to understand why people might want to avoid loose talk. Much simpler to keep your head down, 
No need to go blabbing to an English journalist making a cold call. Becoming a whistleblower in South Africa isn't a decision to take lightly. It's a country with a very long history of violence, including violence supported by the state. Which is why we ought to listen carefully to those FSS agents who are willing to put their heads above the parapet to reveal what they say were missions carried out for FSS on BAT's behalf. Our aim was, uh, right in the beginning, get rid of the opposition, intervention, 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 as much as possible to disrupt, disrupt, disrupt. And that was told to you quite clearly? 100%, and that's all we worked on, is to disrupt and have as many interventions as possible through our law enforcement agencies. That's Francois van der Westhausen, who we met last time. Like Marius, Francois was a member of BAT's hired security company, FSS. He managed his own team. And like Marius, Francois used to be a cop. My career was mostly spent at murder and robbery unit. Many of the guys at FSS were ex-police. And most, like Francois, came of age during the last days of the apartheid era. At that time, in the late 80s and early 90s, South Africa was often in a state of emergency. A brutal turf war between the main parties representing the black community, the African National Congress, the ANC, and the Inkata Freedom Party, the IFP, meant that murders were even more rife than they are today. It was a fire that the National Party's apartheid regime was only too keen to fuel, in the hope of dividing the black community and painting them as violent thugs. It was a profound and bloody moment in the country's history. And there, amidst the chaos, was Francois. And by the time I was 19, I had already shot like two or three people, you know, um, to death. in self-defense, being a policeman at that age. And uh, you're still a kid yourself. Uh, It was hard times because we had faction fightings. We had this conflict between ANC and IFP. And you would get murders, like 16, 17 murders a night I had to attend as a duty officer. 16 or 17 a night? Yes, yes, that's quite correct. You can't cope with it because the very next hour you're going to attend another scene and, and, and... So everything becomes vivid. It becomes vivid. Each scene replaces another. You don't actually ever forget about it. You know, it it just plays like the old-fashioned 35-millimeter camera. When you uphold it against the wall, you see all that flashes going past. It'll probably be buried with me, you know? At that time, the South African police used extreme violence – Methods such as interrogating suspects by throttling them with a piece of rubber tubing. Your hands are being tied behind your back, you're being laid down, your feet are tied up, and then they would use a a tube to put around your head and then pull pull the tube tight together and within three minutes you probably pass out. It was a well-known fact uh, that everybody did it. Francois tells a story of how years later, after the fall of the apartheid regime and long since he'd left the force, he was driving his car and pulled up at a police roadblock. 
I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. One of the policemen at the roadblock was a former ANC member, a former suspect who Francois had once interrogated. But now the tables had turned and the suspect was a cop and Francois was a civilian. One of the policemen there um, at the roadblock uh, recognised me and, and said to me, you know, this guy's out of the police but I know him. This is what he did to me when I was an ANC member. And I was actually arrested on, on, on that basis and I was tortured. So that was a method that you used to use and then they used it back on you when you were recognised? Correct, correct. Jesus. It's obvious why private security firms hire former policemen, but it's worth remembering that some of the ex-cops in BAT's pay were cut from a particular cloth. These weren't cops who'd spent their days reprimanding shoplifters. These were guys who'd effectively fought an all-out war for years. I mentioned earlier that two of FSS's senior managers, the brothers Mike and Derek Vosloo, had been members of a particularly notorious police squadron, Reaction Unit 9. Francois says that when he arrived, he was surprised to see just how many of the guys at FSS had come from that one unit. 99% of them were from Reaction Unit 9, with most of them having been worked under their commander, Mike Forsler, Captain Mike Forsler. During the apartheid era, the job of the reaction unit was to quell protests and rioting in South Africa's black townships, ghettos into which black workers and their families were segregated. Throughout the 1980s, the reaction units had a reputation for violence and for suppressing subordination with a heavy hand. Using armoured cars, tear gas and shotguns to try and subdue the popular insurgency that swept the country. In the struggle to end apartheid, the reaction units were active participants on the wrong side of history. Reaction Unit 9 was really effectively... Um, a police riot squad unit. So they were, you know, tactical, boots-on-the-ground kind of guys you would call in if you needed someone to throw a hand grenade or a stun grenade. That's Talita Snickers. You may remember her from episode one. She's an expert on the South African tobacco industry and a former colleague of Johan van Lochrenberg, the South African taxman tasked with investigating BAT. Talita says that in her opinion... The private security company used by BAT weren't exactly a crack team of detectives. So they didn't have investigation skills. They didn't have any, um, you know, experience in terms of conducting forensic investigations. They didn't have any experience or background and skills in terms of understanding fraud, in terms of understanding money laundering. These were not their skills. Their skills are that they are tactical operatives who, um, you know, are good with guns and they're good with tactical equipment. That seems like an odd choice to to employ, in a, you know, as investigators for a private security firm. Well, I guess it depends on what you wanted them to do. And that work was effectively um, that they needed them to dig up dirt. And, you know, sometimes it's entirely possible to dig up dirt on somebody using entirely legal methods. But for the most part, 
it's very difficult for a private company um, to dig up dirt using legal means. And that's where their tactical background in the riot squad came in handy. So, you know, we know that there's evidence that they broke into premises on multiple occasions. We know that they um, placed tracker beacons on BATS competitors' vehicles. We know that they were able to listen in on phone calls. They were able to um, hack into people's phones. Our investigation has uncovered evidence that these weren't the only things that it's been alleged FSS got up to on BAT's behalf. Employing ex-cops allowed FSS to develop very cosy relationships with the local law enforcement. And it's been claimed they were able to use those relationships to leverage all sorts of favours. I've seen thousands of documents from my sources, some of which suggest that FSS agents had special access to the Johannesburg Metropolitan Police Department's CCTV unit, as a result of which it's been claimed they could directly monitor others, including some of BAT's competitors. According to Francois, FSS didn't mind if people mistakenly thought they really were the police. We try to keep it as close as possible by, uh, you know, using the same vehicles as the police would be using, um, the same sort of like setup, you know. Did BAT know that you were impersonating law enforcement officers? Well, I had to keep them up to date with a weekly report, you know, and you can go down and backtrack on my reports where I would say, here I was uh, being um, introduced as captain so-and-so-and-so by the very policeman. Mind you. So that says a level of complicity with police themselves, that they were happy to play along with that. Yeah, to recognise you as, here's Captain so-and-so, and, you know, when we were introduced to people, that kind of thing, yeah. And what's wrong with that? Well, it's, <laughs> it's illegal, you know. Um, you, you cannot impersonate uh, yourself as being a police officer when you're not a police officer. It's worth thinking about BAT's justification in all of this. They say that their use of FSS was just trying to help South African law enforcement fight crime. And what Francois is saying here helps to corroborate that, in a way. FSS were helping the police, and in turn, the police were helping them. But if the claims are correct it would hardly feel like an appropriate state of affairs. A big company with deep pockets bankrolling a private security company using many ex-cops, running around with tracking beacons, paying informants, impersonating real cops and using their connections to secretly leverage access to police CCTV, which they use to covertly monitor people. And to what end? BAT say that for them, it was all in the pursuit of stopping illegal activity within the tobacco industry, to crack down on the smugglers who were costing the South African people millions in lost taxes each year. But one document we've seen illustrates how proposed operations were sometimes described internally by the FSS agents BAT contracted. It's a PowerPoint presentation anticipating the launch of a major campaign, the wonderfully named Operation Overlord. We know the mission went ahead, 
Although we can't be sure if BAT signed off on every element, the document is read by an actor. Improvise, adapt, overcome. We need to work as a unit, lean, mean fighting machine. We will disrupt the enemy. We will destroy their warehouses. We will blow up their supply lines. And then at the bottom, a disclaimer. The conclusion is a figure of speech and is not the action that will be taken. The words might have been metaphorical, but the disruption was real. Internal reports we've seen suggest Operation Overlord damaged not only smugglers, but also the legitimate business activities of some of BAT's competitors, while an end-of-month review stated... The supply lines have been disrupted, but not that many sticks have been recovered. By our estimates, by 2014, BAT was spending up to £5 million a year bankrolling FSS's operations for them. For that kind of investment, you'd expect results. Jonathan Benton is a former member of the Metropolitan Police and the National Crime Agency. If you're employing somebody to gather this information, one assumes that actually the courts were full of people being put before the courts every single week for illicit activity and they were being convicted and they were going to prison or they were whatever the right sentence was. Because because proportionately, that's that's what... If I was spending that sort of money, I was writing off that sort of budget, I would expect tangible outcomes. Since leaving the force... Jonathan spent a lot of time working in the private sector as an investigator, and he also advises companies and NGOs that work within the private intelligence space on how to keep their operations legal. It turns out that when private investigations are run properly, there's a lot of paperwork and planning involved. If I'm asked to advise on how you put something like this in process there's an awful lot of policy behind it and there's an awful lot of writing Um, you would expect very very clear terms of reference as to what people are employed to do how do we make sure that they're acting at all times within the law BAT have so far been pretty tight-lipped with us beyond saying that they deny any wrongdoing which seems a funny way for the good guys to act If you're really doing great work fighting crime, why not talk about it? Private firms steps in to battle the bad guys. That's a massive PR win, isn't it? I'd want to be shouting from the rooftop, look how many convictions we've achieved, look at what we've done, look at how we've worked with police, look at how many cases now have gone through the courts. We have stopped three tonnes of illicit goods by working with South African authorities, etc., etc., because why else would you stop it? Because the only other reason you're paying and you're incentivizing people to stop it is because you're you're actually stopping legitimate trade, which would be highly highly wrong. Despite our repeated requests, BAT has provided us with no evidence of any successful prosecutions as a result of the work FSS carried out on its behalf. However, it has vigorously denied that the intent of its anti-illicit operation was ever to disrupt the legitimate business activities of its rival tobacco firms. 
They also point to the fact that earlier this year, the Serious Fraud Office closed its investigation into BAT's activities in the region, citing lack of evidence for any prosecutions. That may well be the case, but Francois van der Westhausen, the ex-FSS agent turned whistleblower, says it was very clear to him internally at FSS that part of how he saw his job was to disrupt BAT's rival firms. It was put out to us as a head of the planning in the beginning. Your aim is to close down the opposition. They would say that the big defence uh, from British American Tobacco would be that this was about cracking down on you know, a really big problem with illicit and, you know, counterfeit products in South Africa um, and that they were doing their part to assist law enforcement by gathering this information and sharing it with the police so that they could act in a, you know, in a completely legitimate fashion. I understand if you want to use that as a defence, but then you must remember that as far as I'm concerned, uh, I was assigned to do the local manufacturing within the borders of South Africa. And... It, it was said to be, we must make sure and, and, and make the people believe that these local manufacturing tobacco plants, that they are the ones manufacturing an unimaginable amount of uh, tobacco and, and pushing it into the market as illicit. And it, it was absolutely absurd. What France was saying is that in his view, most of the illicit tobacco in the South African market wasn't being produced locally. It was, he says, coming in from outside, cross-border, from tobacco plants in neighbouring Botswana, Mozambique and Zimbabwe. And that helps to explain something else we've seen in the confidential documents we've been shown. The BAT FSS operation, which lasted for more than 15 years, wasn't just limited to South Africa. Our documents indicate that from at least 2011, the operations started to expand into other countries, Botswana, Mozambique and Zimbabwe, countries where relations with the local police weren't always so cosy. Not least in Zimbabwe, which at the time was ruled by the dictator Robert Mugabe. And our documents indicate that out there, BAT's hired security company, FSS, started to run into trouble. Big trouble. And that there appears to have been a secret deal hatched to bail them out. That's coming up next time on Smokescreen. Smokescreen is a podcast from the Bureau of Investigative Journalism for Audi, produced by Novel. It was produced and written by Tom Wright. It was researched and investigated by me, Victoria Hollingsworth, Matthew Chapman and Malcolm Rees. Our executive producers were Max O'Brien, Myrian Jones, Rachel Oldroyd, David Medell, Owen Bennett-Jones and James Ball. Our fact-checkers were Alice Millican and Frankie Goodway. It was mixed and edited by Alex Portfelix. If you've been enjoying Smokescreen, please don't forget to like, comment and share this podcast. 
apparently it helps other people hear about it. 